This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. You know, one thing I think we could all use a little more of uh, is encouragement, isn't it? You know, I don't know if it's a residual supply chain issue from the pandemic, which feels like 15 years ago, but we're still claiming supply chain issues from the pandemic. Um, but encouragement seems to be in short supply these days. It's, it's not on the shelves in the stores yet. And so, like, I've, I've appreciated every note of encouragement I've ever gotten to the point that I keep them, right? I save them so I can read them again later. Because, see, the thing about notes of encouragement is that they continue to encourage every time you read them. And so, for example, just to share a few of them, uh, someone left me this sticky note in my Bible one day in the middle of the Psalms, and it just says, you've got this. A sticky note stays to this day. A couple weeks ago, one of you left a sticky note in my, uh, on my desk, and it says, the Lord is with you. We love you. Mention Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Jokes on the anonymous person who left that pink sticky note because the next week I quoted from Bonhoeffer in Life Together and I used his, or, sorry, I don't know that it was a him. Um, I left Jason's sticky note here in my, <laughs> in my copy of Life Together as my bookmark. But I, uh, I keep them all. I've got a drawer filled with them. Like this one's awesome. It's got, it's got sriracha on the cover, right? It's a hot card. And then there's some that every once in a while, do you know how, um, do you ever take like a $5 bill at the end of the winter when you go to put your winter coat away? Do you ever like intentionally shove a $5 bill in there so that in the fall, uh, you, when you take that coat back out, you're surprised? Like some of you right now are about to be surprised. It's cold. Well, so every once in a while, I'll take a note of encouragement. This one was from early in the pandemic. And I'll take a good book, like a really good book that I know I'm coming back to, and I'll shove that note of encouragement in there so that when I come back to that book, I'm reminded of that person, I'm reminded of their encouragement. Each note continues to provide encouragement to this day when I go back and read them. And I think that's at least in part why we're so drawn to the book of Philippians, and, and maybe without even knowing it, because it's essentially a note written to encourage a struggling church, to help them find joy in the midst of their suffering. A note that has continued to encourage followers of Jesus for 2,000 years to this very day. A note that we're gonna look at in our new sermon series that we are calling for the good of one another because the heart of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in the Macedonian city of Philippi is encouragement to continue living out the way of Jesus, living for the glory of God and living for the good of one another. And we're gonna begin our time here in this, in this letter, this note of encouragement, by looking at the introduction to this letter in a sermon that we're calling Encouragement for the Good of One Another. And so if you haven't already, let's open up our Bibles. Go ahead and take out your Bible and open them up. New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, it's going to be after the Corinthians, after Galatians and Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, first and second. I still sing the song when I go through it. Uh, in the middle of seminary classes, there would be me singing the song. Open them up, Philippians. We're going to be in the introduction here in the first 11 verses. And this introduction, it's like most letters from the first century Greco-Roman times. It begins with a, a brief greeting and a prayer of thanksgiving. 
And, and in this greeting, in these opening two verses, Paul, he introduces both himself and those with him. He says in verse one, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He introduces himself, then he introduces those to whom he's writing. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And then he wishes them in verse two, he says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, hear me, this greeting is far more than a mere formality. Because right here in these opening two verses, he begins to set the tone of the entire letter. He's alluding here to the very reason that he wrote this letter. Remember the the, the New Testament epistles, they're, they're letters. Letters written by Peter and Paul, James and John. Letters written to a specific people, living in a specific place at a specific time. And they were written for a specific reason, right? There is a context to the text. The author, he is responding to a situation that they are facing, which is important for us to understand because when we misunderstand why something was written, it often leads to us misunderstanding what was written. We have to understand the why behind the what, and we begin to get a sense of that, a glimpse of that here in the introduction. And what he's doing here, he's stressing two things. He's stressing both humility and unity, right? Humility that brings about unity. And so he, he's stressing humility here in that unlike many of his other letters, there's no mention of his apostleship here. Because unlike, uh, say, his letters to the Corinthians or to Galatia, that's not in question here. That's, that's not why he's writing. There's no need to defend his authority or his calling from God. Instead, he refers to both himself and Timothy here, not just as servants of Christ Jesus, as our ESV says, but as slaves of Christ Jesus. A far more accurate translation of that Greek word doulos. Slaves. Uh, a word that, if we're honest, it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable a word we tend to shy away from giving our nation's horrific past with the brutal enslavement of fellow image bearers based on their race. A concept that didn't exist until we created it. However, slave is the word that Paul uses to refer to himself. Only this is an entirely different type of slavery. This isn't the consequence of oppression like was done in our country. This wasn't the, the consequence of, of coercion, say, as in Paul's day, uh, either selling yourself into slavery to pay off debt or captured as a prisoner of war in battle. No, this was a slavery that was entered into freely. This was a voluntary state of submission and service, surrendering the entirety of one's life to someone else, surrendering it to Jesus no longer viewing his life as his own to do with as he pleased, but now belonging to Jesus. He was owned by Jesus. And that's the life that Jesus is calling to, isn't it? That's the life he calls us to as his followers, to leave that old life behind, to put that old self to death and follow him every step of every day for the rest of our lives, faithfully following his way in obedience to his words. But he not only stresses humility, he also stresses unity. Paul, for example, Paul was a, a bit of a spiritual father to young Timothy. 
whom he actually met not long before he arrived in Philippi. He referred to Timothy as his true child in the faith, and yet there's no mention whatsoever of any sort of hierarchy here in the introduction to this letter. He, he doesn't introduce himself as an apostle along with Timothy, his disciple in this letter. I, I, instead, this introduction is entirely egalitarian. He, he's, he's stressing their commonality, their, their status as equals in Christ. They are both slaves of Christ Jesus. And he continues stressing this humility that brings about unity also among those to whom he's writing. He writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, when we hear the word saints, I, I think we think of something different. We think of, uh, I'm wearing my uh, St. Augustine socks today, for example. We think of folks like that, don't we? Singling out a few with this, this exceptional holiness. Something of their own doing. But the saints that Paul's referring to here, he's referring to all of God's holy people as the NIV translates this. All of God's people set apart and distinct from the world because of their belief in something of someone else's doing made holy by the holiness of another. It's a humility that brings about unity among all the saints set apart because they are in Christ Jesus. Where Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male or female. And it's not that those distinctions cease to exist. We are still created by God in his image as male and female. But that in Christ there is no hierarchy based on those distinctions. Be it based on birthright, be it based on social economic status, or be it based on gender. There is only humility that brings about unity. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. Me meaning, one is no more empowered or important than the other. One is to be given no more of a voice than the other. Rather than standing one in front of the other or one on top of the other, what Paul says here is we stand side by side one another, doesn't he? Saints standing with the overseers, alongside the elders, those entrusted with spiritual care and oversight of the community of believers, not, not separated from them in some green room where they get to hide out in secret. The saints standing with the deacons, with the, the ministers, those entrusted to, to oversee the service to and administration of this community of believers. Humility that brings about unity. Humility that brings about unity among, among a people, a people that have been humbled by God's grace, a people united by the peace of, from God, our Father, united together both with God as his children, united together as family by his peace found in Christ, set apart by our declaration that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not anyone else, most definitely not ourselves. humility that brings about unity. And he follows this greeting then with a prayer of thanksgiving, which is really a prayer of encouragement. If you remember back to Galatia, Paul skipped right past this, and he's like, here's five ways y'all aren't very good. If you read his letter to the Corinthians, it's like 42 reasons y'all have messed up. Not here. 
Now he starts with a prayer of encouragement and he expresses three things here in this prayer. He expresses his gratitude for them, his affection for them, and he ends by expressing his desire for them. But he begins this prayer by expressing his gratitude for them. And as, as Dan read, the, the ESV in being a word-for-word translation sometimes is clunky. Uh, Jill's folks, they live on a, on a gravel road. The boys have always called it the bumpy road. And sometimes word-for-word translations are like a gravel bumpy road. And sometimes I think we do a little bit better on paved road. And so I want us to switch to the NIV for these two verses here, which, which does a great job in maintaining the original meaning while also smoothing out the language a bit. And so he says in verse three, he says, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. There's a lot of fully inclusive words in there. Every time I remember you, all of my prayers, all of you, If you have someone in your life, maybe a friend, maybe a a child, maybe a a puppy dog, where every time you think of them, it makes you smile, can we just look at my sweet boy and that sweet puppy? You can go, aw, yeah. How can that not make you smile, right? So like you kind of get a feel here of, of what Paul's talking about because just by looking at that picture, you feel what Paul feels. But why? Why was he so grateful for them? Well, he shares two reasons. And the first is their participation. Right from the moment that Paul arrived in Philippi along with uh, Luke and Silas and and Timothy, and from the moment that he planted the church there, the the first church that was planted in Europe, a a church he planted on his second missionary journey in a story we read about in Acts 16, this church and these people, they were special to Paul. They were special to him, but not, not because of the size of the church. Scholars estimate there was like 30, maybe 50 people in this church. It wasn't because of their wealth. Man, they were, they were poor. It wasn't because of their influence. No, these were, these were outcasts. No, it was because of their support of them, because of their partnership in the gospel with him, he said. They supported him, and they, they supported him relationally sharing their lives with him, sharing their homes with him. One of the first people that Paul met when he arrived in Philippi was a woman by the name of Lydia. One Sabbath, she and a group of women were, were down by the river in this place of prayer play, praying. Uh, we believe it was a, uh, not a, a very large Jewish population, possibly not even enough for their own synagogue. And so these, this group of women, they went down one Sunday to pray and, and Paul met them and he began sharing Jesus with them. And after hearing about Jesus, after hearing that the promised Messiah that she had heard about, that he had come, and after having her heart opened by God, Luke writes, she asked Paul to baptize her. And not just her, but her entire household. And then they threw a big party, a big baptism party, and she invited the whole crew back to her house to stay while they were in Philippi. That's how you plan a church. Started right there in her living room. Similar to redemption, beginning in our living room out in Crystal Lake. We just didn't start by going down to a river and bringing people. They supported them relationally, but they also supported them financially. 
sharing what little they had, and hear me, they had little. He, he describes this in his letter uh, to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, for in a severe test of affliction, uh, this, the church of Macedonia is sort of like, wink, wink, the guy sitting in the third row who left me a pink sticky note, but I'm not gonna say Jason's name. For in a severe test of affliction, the Philippians, their, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Right? They, they wanted to be a part, not just of what God, uh, Paul was doing, but of what God was doing in every way they could with everything they had. Right? The Philippians initiated helping churches thrive. We're just following their example here some 2,000 years later. And their partnership, their support, it was an incredible encouragement to Paul. And not just because of how much money they gave, but how much of themselves they gave. They were with him every step of the way, he says, from the first day that he arrived in Philippi until now, until this very day that he wrote this letter. And that's saying something because some things happened between those two points. Paul, he's writing this letter from prison, we're gonna see later on. We're not sure where. He either wrote it from Ephesus some five years later during his extended stay there uh, in, in a story we read about in Acts 19, or he wrote it from a, a jail in Rome some 10 years later uh, during his first imprisonment, a story we read about in Acts 28. But this imprisonment in, in this time, it brought about a great deal of shame in a shame honor culture, dishonoring not only the one who was imprisoned, but their friends, their family, their community, anyone who remained associated with that individual. And so while most would have abandoned Paul, they stood by his side. They, they cared for him. Sending Epaphroditus, as we're going to see later, just to check in on him. They, they provided for him. They sent food and supplies to Paul with Epaphroditus because prisoners at this time, they were, they were entirely dependent on outside support for everything they needed to survive. And it was this constant source of encouragement that he was grateful for. He was grateful for their partnership and their support. But he mentions a second reason here as well in verse six. A second reason he's grateful and filled with joy, and that was their own spiritual growth and formation. Right? He says in verse six, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, God, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, the day of his return. Right? From the day God opened Lydia's heart down there by the river to the day she opened their home and this church began to the current day. God was working in them and among them and Paul was certain that God would finish what he had started. And Paul's faith in what God would do was rounded and rooted in who God is, that he who promised is faithful, amen? It was rooted in who God is and all God had already done, knowing that their faith their formation would be brought to completion, fully formed into the image of Christ upon the day of his return, a day when God will bring about the completion, the conclusion of this, this grand story of redemption that we read about, restoring 
God wants very good creation, resurrecting our dead bodies, undoing the great undoing. And he wrote to encourage them, sharing how grateful he was for their encouragement of him. It's encouragement that keeps on encouraging. And like, I get it. I get it because that's how I feel when I see you guys serving at the pantry on Saturday morning or stopping to pray with someone on Sunday morning. I, I feel it when I hear about how you met someone new to you or uh, when someone uh, joined, a, joined a new small group. I especially see it when, when I see you take that next step, whatever that is, be it a step of leadership, a, a step uh, uh, of serving, a step of opening your life to others. I hear it when I hear how, how you've been attentive to the Spirit's leading when you share how what we are reading and practicing in the way is forming you. And I'm grateful for the way that we as a church, we are living out those eight distinctives we looked at over the course of the last two months. That, that, that sermon series was not about what we are going to do, but what we have been doing and are gonna continue to do. And to kind of like bring it all together, I think, Nothing encourages a pastor more than when the church is the church, when the church is being the church. That's the most encouraging thing I think there could be for a pastor because it is this visible sign of the spirit moving, of God moving. I hope you know um, how grateful I am for you. I hope you know how encouraged I am by you. And I hope you're encouraged by the glimpses of God's grace to us and his spirit at work among us that we get to see. And that gratitude I feel, all it does is further stir my love and affection for y'all. And that's kind of what Paul's getting at here in the second part of his prayer. He continues his prayer of encouragement by expressing his, his affection for them. He says here in verse seven, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Right? It is right, he says, to feel this way. It is good for me to feel this way about y'all he, he, he makes no apologies for the way he feels, holding them in his heart as partakers with him of this undeserved, unearned grace from God the Father. Why? Because they stood by his side. They stood by his side in his imprisonment, never leaving him, never ashamed by him, and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel as he continued to point people to Jesus and they continued the mission that he started there in Philippi. They continued pointing people to Jesus, contributing and participating and doing their part. It was the church being the church even after he left. They stood by his side when he was imprisoned there in Philippi. He, um, there's a little story that they tell in Acts 16. He, uh, he exercised a demon from a young slave girl that a group of men owned and were exploiting for their own profit. 
and they were using her as a supposed fortune teller. And so when the demon was exercised, she was of no value to them. And so they drug Paul and Silas. They drug him to the authorities. They had him stripped of his clothing, beaten with rods, and thrown into prison and left in chains. And they stood by his side. And now they continue to stand by his side in prison yet again for his defense and confirmation of the gospel. It was as though they were there in the prison cell with them. And he was grateful for them. He, he was wanting to be with them again. And he says in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of, of Christ Jesus. And no one loves you more than Jesus. Amen? And that's the only way he knew how to describe his love for them. Now hear me, I am, uh, I am by no means Paul. I was waiting for an amen there. I am by no means Paul, it's pretty clear. And so what I'm about to say is by no means meant to equate myself to Paul or my situation to his. Because um, I've, I've never been imprisoned for preaching the fullness of what makes the gospel such good news. That's never happened. But I have felt a, a bit of the isolation that I think he felt. And I very much felt the affection for those who have stood by me in the midst of it. I, I, I read what Paul writes here, and, and I think back to stepping in as lead pastor in 2016. And I think of those of you who, who stayed through the transition, listening to every sermon from that first sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And yes, folks, we are still the church. That was the name of the first series. And about week 52 of that series, people would ask, are we still the church? You bet we are. I'm grateful for those who stayed through moving here and merging with another church because, man, we've, we've been through a lot together, haven't we? And like Paul, I hold you in my heart. But I also think back to, and that rough 18-month stretch there in the pandemic where it seemed like the more we spoke up in defense and confirmation of the gospel, how we as followers of Jesus should respond to the events that were taking place in our world, viewing them through the lens of scripture, being formed by Jesus, by faithfully following his way and obedience to his words, it seemed like the more that we did that, the more people left and the smaller our church became. And I think back to those of you who stayed during that time. But I also think of a third group. I think of those of you who came during that time. So at this point, I covered y'all. This would be where I ask you to raise your hand if you're in the room. Thank you. I think about how we have been forged in the fire, how we have been formed in the trial, and how we've come out the other side stronger and more united. And like Paul, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, because I don't know how else to describe it. But I don't just think back to my story. I don't just think back to our collective story. I think back to your stories that you have shared with us. Stories of how others have stood by your side in the trials you faced. The isolation you felt, but also the affection you feel for those who came alongside you and stood by you, bearing that burden with you, weeping with you as you wept. And not all those stories are great stories, are they? Some of them are painful to think back on, but when we do, when we reflect on those stories, as Paul did here, it stirs our affection for one another, our love for one another, reminding us that we are not alone when we live for the good of one another. 
Paul's setting the tone of this letter already. Now having expressed his gratitude for them and his affection for them, he closes this, this beginning prayer by sharing his desire for them. He says in verse nine, and it is my prayer, it is my desire that your love may abound more and more. He says, loving with knowledge, knowing what this love looks like, having seen it, that love displayed on the cross for the whole world to see. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have seen that love because we have seen the love of Jesus. We haven't just seen it though, we have experienced that love, encountering in our incarnational love that, that, that came down to us as one of us and dwelt among us. An incarnational love and a sacrificial love that gave his life for us. He died for us. And we have been transformed by that love in loving others the way that Christ loves us loving with knowledge, and loving with all discernment. Loving not as an emotional response, but a deliberate decision. One made for the glory of God and the good of others. Learning to, to not only love much, but love well, Eugene Peterson writes in the message. So that you may approve what is excellent, desiring what God desires and loving what God loves, pure and blameless for the day of Christ's return, he writes. Having, having lived a life filled with the fruit of righteousness that doesn't come on your own, but comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit of the Spirit that manifests itself in loving God and loving others, loving all others, and living your life for the glory and praise of God, he writes, and living your life for the good of one another. Knowing, knowing that if we have all the power and influence we could ever hope for, Knowing if we have all the knowledge and understanding we could hope for. Knowing that if we have faith so strong and powerful as to remove mountains off the face of the earth, but we have not love. If the love of Christ does not impact the way that you live and the way that you love, Paul says, then we are nothing. We are nothing without love. This distinction that Jesus said the world would recognize us as his followers by. And so his desire was for them to continue staying the course that they were already on. And that's my desire for us as a church, for you, for me, for us, for our love to abound more and more and more, pointing people to Jesus by loving them like Jesus, formed into his image by faithfully following his way in obedience to his words, planting that seed, caring for that seed that has been planted and praying for an abundant harvest filled with the fruit of righteousness, knowing that it is God who gives the growth, amen? Fruit of his grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ, all to the glory and praise of God and for the good of one another. Now you get, a, you get a little sneak peek of what's coming up over the next few weeks. Of this letter of encouragement that we're going to, to look at over the next couple of months. And so I wanna bring our time in this introduction to a close uh, in a time of guided reflection as we always do. And, and in this time, I want us 
recognizing ourselves both as servants and as saints to allow the spirit to stir within us, forming within us that same posture of humility that brings about unity. Humbled as slaves of Christ Jesus, but united as servants in Christ Jesus. And so as you listen to the reading of God's word, this prayer of encouragement, this expression of gratitude and affection, I want you to listen with an openness to the leading of God's spirit, bringing to mind someone you are grateful for, who has stood by you. Someone you feel affection for that has made a difference in your life. It it might be someone from your past a teacher or a pastor, a coach or a parent. It might be someone presently in your life, someone at work, a friend, a family member, a neighbor. It might be someone here at Redemption, someone in your small group or formation group, someone you serve with, someone who has served you. Or if you have kids, it might be someone that's made an impact in their life that you are grateful for. Maybe someone serving down at kids right now. Maybe someone who will be serving in youth this afternoon. My prayer is for that face, that name to be revealed through the course of this reading. And after I read, I want you to take that note card that was on your seat, the one that we promised was not a pledge card. I want you to take that card, and after I read, I want you to write the name of that person on the outside of the envelope. And then either now in our time of reflection or later this afternoon, but at some point today, I want you to write them a note of encouragement, expressing your gratitude for them, expressing your affection for them, your desire for them. A note that will continue to encourage them every time that they read it. And the more specific you can be, the more encouraging your note will be. And then hand that note to him the next time you see it. Or better yet, just put it in the mail today. I realize there's no mail tomorrow, but it'll get there on, it'll, it'll get picked up on Tuesday. Worst case, you come back next Sunday and there's an empty note of encouragement in your Bible and you'll fill it out next Sunday before service starts. That's fine too. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.